You're listening to season three of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.40, Cat-Eyed Kiara, and we are your hosts. I'm Tommy McTomface, and regrettably my name for this week was decided by online write-in contest. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and exceedingly thankful for Tom this week. He figured out something that doesn't quite salvage the episode, but at least makes it make more sense. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 459 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Victor M, Mark andre D, Connor S, Denki Heater, Chris R, and Jake the Hawk. This podcast would not be possible without your support. You can help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon, a subscriber at Subscribestar.com slash GundamPodcast, or making a one-time payment on our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash GundamPodcast. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 42, The Girl from Core 3, or Koa 3 no Shoujo. Part 1. Part 1. This episode originally aired on December 20th, 1986. It was written by Suzuki Yumiko and directed by Yokoyama Hiroyuki, who also did the storyboards. For our research this week, Nina is going to talk about some outfits that show up in this episode, and I have another installment in what I have decided is going to be a running series of pieces on the tale of the Heike. But first, it's time for another nail-bitingly exciting installment of Radio Free Shangri-La. And now, the new case files of Detective Jane Stryker. We did what we could for Hector. But a walk-in humidor and an alien surgeon with a pocket knife is a poor substitute for an ICU. We took him to the nearest hospital that still had beds open, after all the fighting in Dakar that night. As for the other two, I don't know if I believed in multiple realities, or parallel dimensions, or quantum estranglement theory, or whatever they called it. But the fact was, they had nowhere else to go so I took them back to my apartment. It was a shabby garret over the new Galbaldi pizzeria, and true to form, Mr. Galbaldi was still there cleaning up after a long day. Hey, Jimmy, you sure took your sweet time delivering those pizzas. Oh, hey, Goomba, hold up a second. Oh, market quest, that ain't no sauce all over your shade, is it? Uh, no, Mr. Galbaldi, that's, uh... That's blood. Oh, mother of me. Is that it? 
Oh, that's all right then. Oh, I thought maybe you maybe drop one of our famous pizza pies. Hey, I see you've got some friends with you. They hungry? I can whip you up a nice quattro fromage, maybe some insalago gonzola and a couple of nice salty colas to wash it down with. Eh, on the house. Zarbibi. And that sounds like a yes to me, eh? Hey, Van up. I'll bring up when it's ready. Alright, choose Mama Luke's. We got number five coming up special for Jimmy. As Alfredo Galbaldi busies himself in the kitchen, Detective Stryker leads his guests upstairs. It isn't much, but you can stay here. Is this really how people in this dimension live? My friend says to thank you for your hospitality. It's so squalid, and it smells of desperation. We both appreciate it so much. Well, you can stay here until you figure out what to do next. Ah, but we already know what to do next. We've got to find a way to stop Alice and Hector's brother- Adenauer. Gesundheit. No, Hector said his brother's name was Adenauer. Well, in any event, we've got to stop them from stealing that poor, innocent orphan's inheritance. She is, at most, one of those things, but... Yeah, okay. How do you plan to stop them? First, we need to figure out where they're going next. And? And that sounds like a job for a detective. A part of me wanted to tell this clown to go jump in a lake, preferably one composed mostly of sludge. But I had to admit, I wanted to see where all of this was going. I wanted to know the secret behind that vintage horror. What was in it that had the Fetties so spooked? Besides, if I was lucky, then maybe I'd do more than just satisfy my curiosity. They say the gratitude of somebody like Bethany Computesworth is more valuable than money. But I figure it could also be worth a lot of money. But even if I were the best private detective in Dakar, there was no way for me to figure out where they had gone or what happened to the Haro without a little help from Lady Luck. And I wasn't expecting to hear from her again. But that's when the phone rang. When I picked it up... Hello? It was a different lady I wasn't expecting. Hello, Mr. Stracker. I hope you don't mind me calling so late. Uh, no, not at all. But how did you get my number? Oh, Mr. Stryker... A woman never divulges her secrets. Now tell me, are you available to resume work on my case? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't appreciate being jerked around. So if you're planning to cut me loose in the middle of my investigation, again, then maybe you should just call somebody else. I feel just terrible about the way things went down last time, Mr. Stryker. But I don't think you realize just how much danger you were in. Oh, yeah? Well, if you want me back on your case, then I want to know everything. Up front. As you wish, Mr. Stracker. It'll be your funeral. I'm afraid I hired you under false pretenses back in Shangri-La. I told you I wanted to find the mobile suit pilots who wrecked my mansion. But the truth is... I never cared much about the building, or the cost of repairing it. I do have insurance, after all. But there was something else. A gift from my dearest friend. 
was only a small thing, but absolutely irreplaceable. It went missing from the mansion after the crash, and I was sure one of those Ayug hooligans stole it. But after I hired you, I learned that I wasn't the only one looking for it. The Federation sent an agent, a hardened killer, with orders to retrieve it at any cost. And that's when you told me to get lost? I was scared, Mr. Stryker. For both of us. So what changed? I heard a funny rumor the other day about one of the insurance adjusters who came out to look at my mansion after the crash. Apparently, he left Shangri-La in a hurry with a briefcase full of gillas. And just before that, he paid a visit to a local antiques dealer with, let's call it a side business. You mean he's a fence? Your word, Mr. Stryker. (laughs) Not mine. But the Federation's agents are off-colony at the moment, and I'm confident they don't know about him yet. If we move quickly... Then maybe we can retrieve your lost keepsake before they catch on. Precisely. I'll wire you the money for the direct shuttle back to Shangri-La. That is, if you'll take the case. Oh, I'll take it. But I'm going to need more than one ticket. Good. I was going to suggest to uh, hire some extra muscle. Oh, and I suppose you'll need to know just what it is you're looking for. Actually, I think I can guess. Vintage Haro? First generation? Gift from Bethany Computesworth? Well, Mr. Stryker, I guess you really are a detective. Before the recap, we have a brief discussion about the pronunciation of some of the names in this episode. This episode introduces a couple of names that we, when we were initially discussing the episode, had some disagreements about how exactly they ought to be pronounced. And so as part of our new initiative to engage in radical transparency about the decisions that go on behind the scenes, or I guess now in front of the scenes... (laughs) In order to uh, decide how we pronounce different names, we're going to discuss those now. And the ones at issue are the name of this asteroid and the name of the new little sister type, because everywhere we go, we have to find a little sister type. So first of all, this episode mostly takes place in a mining asteroid, which seems to be named after a Roman orator from the late Republican period. In English, we would call him Cicero, but in the Japanese, it's Kikero, which is a lot closer to the uh, classical Latin pronunciation for this guy's name. What do you think, Nina? (laughs) I love how he's putting me on the spot like this when I really didn't think we were going to be discussing (laughs) names today. I didn't think any of these were going to be contentious or an issue, but here we are. I was going to say Cicero. Yeah, all right. Here's the problem, if you want to call it that, and it's that Tom is a classics nerd. Tom won awards in high school for his readings in Latin. It's true, that did happen. (laughs) So, of course, he is going to cringe at hearing me say Cicero. I'm honestly not. I think it sounds way better than Kikaro. Okay, cool. All right, Cicero. But 
Just in case any of you out there didn't know, that is not the classical Latin way of pronouncing that name. I think that's some important information that everyone should know. The name of the girl, it's written Rutina, but it's pronounced Ruchina. To my ear, Rutina both sounds like I'm just saying the word routine and also like I'm describing some sort of root vegetable. So I prefer Ruchina. You're saying Ruchina, but in Japanese, it's almost between Rutina and Ruchina. It's like Rutina. Are you hearing the difference? I am, but I absolutely could not replicate that with my mouth. <laughs> it's just practice. Uh, how do I want to say it? When I'm writing the recap in my head, when I'm hearing myself narrate, how do I say it? I say, Rutina. It does just sound like routine, but <laughs> that's what they named her. You, you really want chi? Personally, aesthetically, I think it sounds better, but I'm happy to go with Rutina as well. I don't know if Rutina is like a real name from some region Anywhere. of the world. <laughs> Rutina is a name. Is it? I'm now wondering how it's pronounced, but that exact spelling is a name of a real person. Presumably many real people, but... <laughs> uh, Nina Gundam is real, and all of the people <laughs> in it are real. Looking up how to pronounce. Rutina is routine in Spanish, which is throwing this off somewhat. <laughs> and I don't trust most of these names websites. You shouldn't. They're all terrible. What about howtopronounce.com? Oh, God, they're awful. <laughs> they're all bad. Yeah. All right. Well, never mind then. <laughs> well, we know how to pronounce. How to pronounce is Rutina. And now the recap for The Girl from Core 3, Part 1. The Cicero Mining Asteroid is being prepared for docking with Core 3. But before that happens, the kids from Shangri-La have a plan to infiltrate the asteroid and join forces with the local miners who oppose Neo-Zeon. Inside Core 3, Haman has taken a stately country manor as her base. It appears isolated, quiet. A maid serves tea at an outdoor table and Minerva sits silently, listening while a soldier reports to Haman. Kiara has been recalled to deal with the Lamun rebels. She remains unstable, but we'll have minders, Nee and Lance, to keep her in check. Meanwhile, in space, Glemmy's ship has arrived with Rakan Dakaran and Pudu too. Darting around outside the ship, Kubale surrounded by a swarm of funnels, Pudu too agitatedly informs Glemmy that she can sense Judo nearby and is eager for revenge. With a smile, he wonders if this is his chance to take Neo Zeon for himself. In the mine, no one is suspicious of the kids' arrival, assuming they're new members of the mining team. They are in the middle of lunch, rushing to eat the meager portions provided before cat-eyed Kiara, their mercurial new boss, arrives. But even as they rush, they grumble about missing home and gripe that they were better off under the zombies. As they feared, Kiara arrives, 
bursting through a nearby door, shouting a torrent of abuse and cracking an actual whip. The young girl handing out food becomes the focus of Kiara's ire, until Judo steps between them. It's as if a switch has been activated. Kiara gleefully hugs Judo to her chest, exclaiming over how happy she is to see him, rubbing against him, and fending off any attempts to pull him away from her, until Nia and Lance whisper that a kubele has entered the mine. Kiara suddenly switches back, marching off to deal with Pudutu. Flanked by Nia and Lance, Kiara confronts the young cyber-new-type pilot, but it's no contest. Pudutu has incredible control of the kubele and the bits, even when she isn't in the mobile suit, and leaves Kiara and company pinned down by the bits. She can fire them from anywhere, and will if they follow her. With that, she takes a small hovercraft and leaves to look for Judo. Having seen the seemingly cozy reunion between Judo and Kiara, the miners no longer trust the kids from Shangri-La, assuming they are Kiara's spies. They return to work, leaving the kids to come up with a new plan. The young girl who Judo protected brings them some food and introduces herself. Her name is Rutina. She is only 12, but some time ago, soldiers arrived at her home and took her father away. He never returned. Not long after, she was conscripted to work in the Cicero mine. The Gundam team decide they will just have to take over the mine on their own. Judo thinks he can talk Kiara around by reminding her of the happy times they spent together. Like doing our laundry, Elle quips sarcastically, and Judo chides her not to joke, though it's unclear what happy times he means. The group makes their way down the halls only to be ambushed by a group of miners. They lay in wait, armed with clubs, and beat and tie up the kids, hoping to use them to get at Kiara. Rutina hears the ruckus and sneaks onto a ledge overlooking where the miners attacked the Gundam team. A truck arrives, driven by her father, Roy. The rebel miners load the Gundam team into the truck and drive off, none of them noticing when Rutina yells, Father! and chases them. Pudutu arrives just after they leave, and Rutina asks her for a ride and to follow them. After a moment's hesitation, Pudutu agrees. They follow, and she drops Rutina off when the next tunnel is too narrow to accommodate the hovercraft. Thanks! You're a good person! Rutina yells before setting off down the tunnel, leaving Pudutu staring, speechless at the compliment. The miners are unimpressed by the Gundam team's professions that they are with Ayug and brought the nail argama with them. Their focus is on Kiara. While the kids struggle to free themselves, Rutina comes running in. She and her father hug each other close, but then she starts beating his chest, furious that he left her alone. Neozeon was after Roy, and he felt he had to go. But Judo accuses him of abandoning his daughter for the anti-war movement. Rutina vouches for the whole AU group, and the miners agree to work with them, but stay cautious. Elle and Rue are kept as hostages. Across the asteroid, Kiara is still trying to deal with the funnels when Pudutu returns. Now that Pudutu knows where Judo is, she takes the Kubele and goes after him. Kiara, Mi, and Lance give chase, and the group of miners and kids see the whole bunch fly past. 
The rebels begin to yell for help, pretending a rebellion has begun, firing off shots to make it more convincing. Taking advantage of the commotion, Judo confronts Kiara. She tries to hit him with her whip, but he grabs her forearm. Doesn't she remember him? The Argama? Why not leave the war behind? But Kiara is outraged. When he tells her to remember Moon Moon and that Rosara has died, she clutches her head. Nia and Lance shoot at Judo, but Kiara knocks him out of the way. A look of confusion crosses her face. What's wrong with me? Who are you? Why do you have this effect on Kiara? Are you a cyber new type too? Nia and Lance yell as they loom over Judo. But while they've been distracted, the miners and the other Gundam team boys got out and retrieved mobile suits. Bicha shoots through one of the walls with the Zeta, giving Judo a path to escape. The core top is waiting for him and he coordinates with Ino and Mondo to form the double Zeta and fight Kiara. He keeps trying to get her to remember, but the pain of battling her cyber new type conditioning is too much. She screams. All her mobile suits beams fire off at once and it's all Nia and Lance can do to calm her. They take her away from the battle. The docking between Cicero and Core 3 is almost complete, and they can regroup before taking on Ayug again. The boys and the miners return to find a passage littered with dead and dying men. The room where El and Rue were being held is empty, and Rutina is gone too. Pudu 2 has taken them. Most of the group wants to charge after them, but for once, Judo is the cautious one. They can't run headfirst into a trap. They need a plan. This is an episode that presented its translator with some serious difficulties. Uh, unfortunately, neither of which was handled super great. And I, I hesitate to be critical of translation. I think it's a really difficult task. But this episode makes much less sense because of those translation problems. And we are able to devote an entire week to the episode, and so... Partially from that and partially by chance, we have figured out a couple of things that help make the whole episode make more sense. And we're going to start there. And in fairness, at least one of these is, I think, a pretty intractable translation problem. I, I can't imagine how one would go about translating it to make it work. This was an episode that when we both watched it, our first impression was strongly negative. But some of the scenes that elicited the most negative reaction from us make a lot more sense with further study. And so after spending a week analyzing this episode, I went back to watch it again and found myself liking it quite a bit more. I don't know if I liked it. I liked se. it more. I didn't, I didn't say that I'd crossed over into feeling entirely positive about it. I was less outraged. <laughs> But let's jump into what exactly these bits are. Sure. The first and the most straightforward is they call her cat-eyed Kiara. In English, when we refer to cat-eye, we're typically talking about like a style of makeup. 
And clearly the way they were using it had to do with her personality. We couldn't quite make sense of it. But poking around online in Japanese revealed that there's actually a idiom in Japanese about cat-eyed people. And in that context, it refers to how quickly a cat's eyes can change shapes depending on the light conditions. And so calling someone cat-eyed, nekome, is a way of saying that they're very changeable and unpredictable, which is a good way of describing a cyber new type and a good way of describing Kiara in this episode. Even more so than earlier in the series, she really does just like switch black and white, hot and cold on a dime. I do feel as though there are a lot of English words that you could have subbed there and it would have made sense. It'd be tricky to find like a catchy moniker, something that is as catchy as cat-eyed Kiara, but changeable Kiara. Um, shoot, I had thought of some other ones. Things that also start with C <laughs> and mean changeable. But it is Volatile. tricky, right? Because yeah. there's, I think there is a certain double meaning here because I think physically, visually, the way they depict her is kind of feline. I mean, as is often the case for a certain kind of woman in animation, she has some cat-like aspects. And this term that they use for her captures in the Japanese both her personality and her actual physical appearance. And that's a good lead into the other one. Judo making an appeal to Kiara where he says, don't you want to come back to the Argama and do our laundry for us again? Which is the way it's done in English. And this is so dumb as an appeal. We just bounced right off of it when we encountered it the first time we right. were watching we, it. We sort of couldn't believe, we couldn't believe what we were hearing. Who would write this line? It Who is... could write something so nonsensical. Gundam Zeta and Double Zeta especially have been all over the place with their discussions of gender, but this is so weirdly retrograde, so out of character for Judo, so out of line for Double Zeta. And especially when you view it in the larger context of like, here is this woman who has been portrayed as in control of her sexual power and very much in a position of power and authority and agency here on the asteroid Cicero, but who is also on the bad side, the side of evil, and being told that what she should do is give up all of that to do laundry for the good guys, that like, that life of domestic service is the right thing for her. It, <laughs> it's so bad. And the thing is, when I started watching the episode the second time, I noticed a line that had totally gone over my head originally, but when they're initially talking about trying to bring Kiara around, Elle makes a joke to Judo about, oh, are you going to like offer to let her come do our laundry? Well, because I that's such a... That's such a ridiculous offer, and Judo's response is, don't make jokes, Al, be serious. But here's the thing. The word in Japanese, the verb for to do laundry, is sentaku suru. But sentaku suru has another meaning. It can also mean to relax, to take it easy, to take a break. So Judo is saying... Don't you want to come just like chill out on the Argama with us? Right, lay down your burdens, leave the war behind. Just straight vibing. 
Kiara thinks he's offering to let her come do the laundry on the Argama. And it makes sense that she would think that because when she was a prisoner on the Argama, they made her do the laundry. Judo doesn't realize that that's what she's hearing, and he keeps doubling down on this pitch, while she quite understandably rejects it because what she thinks he's saying would be incredibly insulting. It's a bit of clever wordplay in the script that is absolutely not captured in the English. And how would you? We've been thinking about this for days, and we can't think of a way that you would make that work, because you you would need a phrase that means relax and also do work. I don't <laughs> anyway, my problem, the more I think about this, is that even having understood this play on words, Judo's pitch still makes no sense. What about her previous time on the Argama is supposed to be appealing? She was a prisoner doing forced labor who then took some kids hostage so she could try to escape. Like, I'm with Elle on this one. What exactly is he offering her? He can't offer her freedom. They can't just like bring her on the nail argument and give her run of the ship. She's too dangerous and they can't trust her. And what what past fun is he appealing to? Like, they have fought a bunch and they kept her prisoner and she terrorized them and... He's like, remember the good times. What good times, kid? What are you talking about? <laughs> Maybe it would help if uh, Gundam Double Zeta would actually watch Gundam Double Zeta. Part of me wonders if they thought of the pun and fell so in love with the pun that they just had to work it in. And I think part of it is just that this is an episode where we have some characters who are on different sides, but really deep down convinced that the other person is actually a good person and can be brought around. But that's been a recurring theme in Double Zeta, people crossing sides, these kids with their pure feelings and new type perceptions, being able to tell who's really, truly deep down good and appeal to them. That's like the emotional underpinning of what Judo is trying to do here. He thinks Kiara is good. He can sense the goodness in her, and he wants to not have to fight her anymore. Kiara's return is marked by uh, a lot of changes. Her personality is very different and less consistent. We see these big swings, these big fluctuations. Uh, she's got a new even more revealing outfit. She's got a whip. She's got a whip. If the portrayal of her were not already sufficiently like, oh, scary empowered woman, they've given her a whip. Yeah, one of her minders. Was it knee or Lance? They look too similar for me to tell them apart. Uh, but mentions that she is a cyber new type. And I don't think she used to be. I think that's a new occurrence. I believe so. And so we see her marked by the instability and childishness that we see from a lot of cyber new types. I found myself very curious, simultaneously repulsed, by the way they have her interact with and treat Judo. Mm. You mean trying to smother him with her chest? Yeah, and rubbing up on him and mm -hmm. talking about how much she likes young guys. Because she was always and I use the term with air quotes, oversexed. Mm -hmm. But it was sort of confined to combat before because outside of combat, she used it like a weapon. It was deliberate. When we saw her assaulting Judo before, 
She was trying to make him uncomfortable. She knew he was uncomfortable and she was trying to achieve that emotional state. It was on purpose. And he was very uncomfortable, which is an important distinction between those prior episodes and this one. Oh, I thought he was uncomfortable here. You didn't... I, to my eye, he looks confused, nonplussed, but never scared. I don't think he looks scared here, but I do think he's uncomfortable and wants her to stop. Oh yeah, I think that's true. But on her side, this is no longer a power play. This is an obliviousness. It's a compulsion. She does not seem to notice or to be aware in any way that he's mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. She's not trying to make him uncomfortable. She's not malicious about it, but she's extremely inappropriate and impulsive. And I had two different possible takes on <laughs> that. One being, we know Tomino is very interested in early psychology and psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And so is she supposed to be a nymphomaniac? Which is like not, not a thing. And there is a ton of debate in the scientific community even now about compulsion or impulsive behavior around sex. Uh, it's associated with certain other conditions. There's a lot of disagreement about whether it should be its own condition. And they, I think they usually call it hypersexualization. Uh, well, a nymphomania only ever applied to women. For men, there's like a whole, there's a whole nother term. But to my mind, seems like the kind of sensational condition that Tomino might be interested in portraying. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Another possibility being, we've talked a lot about Pudu and through Pudu have talked about early Lolicon, early child pornography in manga and anime. Is her attraction to judo meant to represent the Shotokan aspect of that? Shotokan being what it's called in Japan when it's adult women who are attracted to boys. Either of those are possible. I think it could be intended just to be kind of like body comedy. Um, but it's so unfunny. Just because it doesn't land doesn't mean it wasn't meant to be funny. In particular, her line about, ooh, I love young guys, that to me felt like a, a deliberate call out mm -hmm. that she sort of names specific things she likes about this child <laughs> physically. Mm -hmm. See, when I was thinking about this, I also went to early psychology and Tomino's uh, affinity for it. I don't know for certain that Tomino has read or read about Freud's theories, but I would be honestly shocked if he hadn't. And this feels like it might be something very Freudian by intention. Of course, Chiara is not a real person, so real psychology is less relevant for her than what the show's creators thought about psychology at the time, which is why, you know, as Nina pointed out, the nymphomania thing is uh, very plausible. Another possibility is that this is about like a repressed desire for motherhood from Chiara. Ooh. You're giving me Oedipus complex vibes. Ah, see, I think you can read this as not sexual. Oh, that it's more like... Um... Like breastfeeding, basically. That it's a, the relationship between the older woman and the younger man, not romantically or sexually, but like that the idea is that Chiara has a deeply repressed desire to be a mother. 
and that that is coming out now that she has been rendered unstable by the cyber new type procedure. And one of the ways in which it's coming out is that she has this like desire to breastfeed a child and is particularly drawn to younger people. God, it's really messed up that the least sexist explanation for her in this episode is that she's a pedophile. Yeah. <laughs> I recently read an excerpt from a novel that Tomino is going to write um, a few years after this, where there is a uh, um, rather curious sequence involving a discussion about how one of the teenage boy characters' mothers thinks about using her nipples to soothe her son and compares them to using, for instance, soothing words. So. I think there might be something here. We have always known Tomino is weird about moms and motherhood. We have always known this. And this is an episode that brings up the parent-child relationship and the trauma of separation. All stuff that feels very Freud and very Tomino. Speaking of, is this sexist or not? <laughs> I was peeved that of the whole group, L and Rue are the ones kept as hostages. We're keeping the girls, and the boys are going on the mission. Uh, however, there's a really nice moment when they are trying to make common cause with these miners, and the miners agree to work with them, and Judo immediately looks over to Rue, and it's like, okay, take it away, Rue. Because Rue is the one who apparently actually understands the plan, so. <laughs> and how to talk to people and not be a big dummy. And this is another area where I think the narrative machinery is working because would that misunderstanding between Judo and Kiara have happened if Rue had been there? Heck, if Rue or Elle had been there to be like, no, 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 he doesn't mean doing the laundry. <laughs> we understand why you would feel that way. Do not let Judo talk to people. That's not his specialty. Everybody in the group has their own role. Judo is not the ideas guy or the talking guy. He's the new type demons, double zeta pilot guy. I often agree with Judo when he talks about adults in the world, but I find myself disagreeing with him here. His perspective on Roy and Rutina's relationship is that Roy abandoned his daughter for the anti-war movement. And he, I think it's important that he said anti-war movement. Right, not to fight Neo Zeon or, or some other way of describing it. And then he says, kids just want to be with their parents, just want their parents to be with them. The logical conclusion of these two statements being that either Roy should have abandoned the anti-war movement or he should have taken his daughter with him. And presumably this is all coming from Judo's own personal feelings of abandonment after his own parents left to go work in another colony. Roy is a bit stunned by their anger because as he puts it, Neo Zeon was after him, which to me sounds like had he waited, <laughs> he'd have been killed. Potentially imprisoned indefinitely, but killed is what it sounded like to me. How safe would she have been with him? I mean, obviously how safe was she without him? She got conscripted and she's working in a mine. Also, a 12-year-old girl being just abandoned on her own 
We don't know what her support structure is like. We actually don't know if she has a mother, although it seems like probably not. She says she left me alone. Yeah. Which seems to imply that he kind of disappeared in the night and she didn't have anyone. But there are some things you try to protect kids from. And I don't think it's an unreasonable parental position to say my 12-year-old is safer even on their own than they will be with me hiding in a mining asteroid leading a rebel group. Is she safer because people think he's dead? He did disappear. But could they have gone together somewhere else? Did he have to go to this mining asteroid and lead this rebel group? So only childless people should do the right thing. I'm just saying it's complicated. It's it's very complicated, (laughs) but like lots of people who are involved in various movements will tell you that their calculations change when they have kids. And on the other hand, many people don't change their calculations about risk when they have kids. And I'm sure there are lots of, of people whose parents were very involved in movements, both dangerous and less so, but who were devoted to big causes and who resented it, resented that their parents spent so much time and energy and emotion and and didn't have that same time and energy for them. And even if Roy did the best thing under the circumstances, it's natural that Rutina was still going to end up being hurt by it and that she was going to feel some resentment and pain and want to be able to express that. Much earlier in this season at various points, We have talked about absent fathers. Uh, We were talking about mostly when parents work away from their children, but what is Roy doing if not working away from his daughter? Even if that work happens to be involvement in a paramilitary organization. I mean, we have to assume that he was doing something along these lines beforehand or else Neo Zeon would not have gone after him. He was probably a target because he was already a political figure or a dissident or a labor union leader. In some ways, though, this argument feels like a return to some of Double Zeta's themes from early on. And the idea of absent parents, coupled with, and this came up more in the research piece on childhood, uh, but a sense that many people in Japan were experiencing a loss of community in a sense that they no longer had sort of strong neighborhood or village connections to support them. You know, if they had had that, Rutina would have been looked after. She would have gone to an aunt or a cousin or the neighbor, or she would have gone between a bunch of different houses if any one family couldn't support her all on their own. Had there been a community, she would not have been all alone. I think it also calls back to one of the great questions of Gundam, which is what is the role of children in these big earth-shaking events? What is the role of children in war? And since first Gundam, the answer has generally been that children are more capable, more resilient, and uh, more affected by all of these things than any of us give them credit for. And so ultimately these conflicts which are about deciding what the future will look like belong to the children. And so, yes, it would have been dangerous for Rutina to join Roy, but Gundam, I think, says that she is capable enough to take on that burden, and ultimately 
she's the one who's going to grow up inside three, whether it's dominated by Haman or not. Yeah, it's a recurring idea in Gundam that you can't protect children from war. And so trying to and trying to keep them separate from it is actually kind of pointless. I mean, look, Roy abandoned his daughter and ran away, and she still ended up getting conscripted and sent to the same mining asteroid where he is. Gundam also, so far, takes the moral position that children should be the absolute most important thing to their parents, that they should be the number one priority. And it never states this super explicitly, and it rarely, if ever, shows us good parents doing that, but it frequently shows us bad parents <laughs> not doing that and makes very clear that they're terrible people. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you, Amaro's mom. I don't necessarily agree with Gundam on this. I think it's significantly more complicated than that, but this is one of the few places where I think Gundam takes a explicit, hardline moral position. <laughs> so we've talked about bad parents. Let's talk about good people. We get numerous instances in this episode of Routina telling people or talking about other people and saying things like, you're a good person, you're not a bad person, they're not bad people. And we are informed that Routina has always had good intuition, which we know what that means. They don't have to spell it out for us. She's a new type. And in particular, in the case of Pudu 2, though it certainly also applies to our other characters, what does it mean to call Pudu 2 a good person? Because Pudu 2 murdered Pudu. She participated in the attack on Dublin. When they find her towards the end of the episode, she is in the cubulate surrounded by dead and dying men. So what does it mean to call her a good person? <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so first of all, when Rutina calls Purutu a good person, she gets this, like, starry-eyed look on her face. Purutu oh, yeah. Does. Um, and it's like, <laughs> there was this, like, photo series on the internet a few years back of dogs right before and after you call them a good dog. Oh, yeah. It's, it's that exactly with Purutu. And yeah, it's a good question. I think in a meta kind of way, as viewers of this media, we understand that a good person is a villain who can be redeemed. Right. It's, And we saw this with the sisters from Moon Moon as well, trying to appeal to Haman, trying to appeal even to Stampa, this sense of someone who can be reached, someone who can be changed. It suggests that badness as a quality of a person is really a distortion of their real self. While I understand that calling someone a good person implies the possibility of bad people, if the position of the show is that Purutu is a good person and Haman is a good person, then I don't know what a bad person could be. If Haman is good, Haman, who we have been told, is like projecting this evil aura that is corrupting everything near her and causing strife throughout the Earth sphere is evil, it is a good person, then who, who could possibly be worse? 
we have no indication that Haman actually is reachable, reformable, or has any interest whatsoever in changing. And maybe the sisters from Moon Moon were just too naive and idealistic in thinking of her that way. I do believe in a broad human sense that people who have done bad things can make amends, can reform, can change. Like, that's absolutely possible in many cases. Uh, I often don't think there's much use in calling people good person or bad person because we all do good and bad things all the time. <laughs> and the, it's the balance and severity of those things that matters and our efforts to improve and be better and make amends. But yeah, the, the sort of character essentialism of, but you're a good person. Even as you slaughtered all these men, I'm going to insist that you are not a bad person. Ah, uh, but we are in a universe with mental conditioning, mind control, essentially. Kuru 2 has probably been warped and twisted by Glemi Toto's evil science. Perhaps there is the, the core of a good person in there, well, underneath as, all those layers of control. As we saw with Puru, when she got away from Glemi, she changed quite a bit and got much less selfish, caused much less harm, did much more to help the people around her and to build relationships beyond her fixation on judo. It's also worth considering that one of the effects that childhood trauma can have on a person is to make them start to think of themselves as bad, as a monster, as someone who is only capable of violence and harm. And we've been told that Puru 2 is Puru, but only keeping the violent parts. All we have seen of Puru so far is the monster. And maybe that's how she thinks of herself. But Rutina is there to tell us, to tell her, and to tell the child that there's more to them than that. That doing bad things doesn't make you bad, necessarily. Well, and that at any time, you can choose to stop doing bad things and do good ones instead. But you can only make that choice if you believe that you are capable of doing good things. Oh. This comes back to um, a bit I quite liked in some books I was reading recently, uh, but the main character is talking about a friend of his who has betrayed him multiple times, and he keeps forgiving him, and he doesn't want to lose him. And he has a line about people who believe they're bad, and you have to show them that they can be good. You have to show them that that's even possible. This was, I don't remember which book it was exactly, but this was the Red Rising Trilogy by Pierce Brown, if anyone is curious. My other main frustration with this episode is that I don't have a sense for what exactly the plan is. Are they infiltrating the mining colony and trying to just hide inside it so that they can use it to sneak into Core 3? Because then they don't need to deal with the miners at all. They could have just hidden. <laughs> uh, are they actually trying to take over the mine? Because then why don't they have guns? Uh, the miners are clearly discontented. Many of them are conscripts. They miss home. They miss the zombies. They're not looking for Ayug to come in here and free them. And they don't seem at all impressed by the kids being like, let us out. We're from Ayug. We brought the nail, Argama. They're like, okay. 
maybe that's useful. We'll figure it out. Uh, they clearly don't understand the disposition of the populace with regards to the war. It is definitely a half-baked plan that they have come up with here. No plans, just vibes. <laughs> I think they did go in here with the kernel of an idea and figured that they would just play it by ear from there, as teenagers often do when asked to come up with a plan. The degree to which I wanted to shake Rue when they go inside, she opens her helmet and then says, oh, there's air here, with surprise <laughs> in her voice. You already opened your helmet. What? <laughs> I would like the helmets to be smart enough to know not to open if there wasn't air there. But we watched Zeta and we saw Camille at one point maybe try to kill himself by opening his visor in space. So we know that they can open in a vacuum. I assume the plan here was to go in and make contact with the resistance. They do have some lines of dialogue that indicate that they knew that there was a resistance and that they wanted to get in touch with them and figure out how they could work together. I actually wonder if early on when they say we need to sneak into Cicero before it connects to Core 3, because afterwards it'll be much harder to get in. At first, I assumed that meant that they were trying to use the Cicero asteroid as a way to get into Core 3. Now I wonder if the whole point was to get into Cicero, and they thought it would be harder to get into Cicero and make contact with the Rebels after it linked up with Core 3. Either one of those still seems plausible. It just seems very rich for the same Judo who is cautioning everybody not to go off half-cocked, not to give in to their rage and fear and go chasing after their captured friends, that they need a plan, charged in here fundamentally without a plan. I mean, I get where you're coming from, but I do think the opening to this episode conveys plannedness. The way they approach it, moving in multiple teams, watching out for each other, going in with their mobile suits hidden in dummy asteroids, themselves dressed not in the regular spacesuits, but in ones that have been colored to match what the mining guys are wearing. Like, there are the artifacts of a plan, it's just never conveyed to us what it is, and then later in the episode it starts to become kind of inconsistent what the plan is or was. I suppose. I know they are frequently neglected when it comes to supplies, but are you honestly telling me the nail Argama didn't have a single pistol <laughs> or hand laser or whatever you want to call it? Stun gun? Or... I am telling you that because it is so easy to imagine when Bright gave them the ship, just being like, Astanaji, I need you to jettison all of the weapons. We cannot trust those kids. It's going to be like Lord of the Flies in here. Around the edges of this episode, outside of the puns and the body humor that isn't funny and the lack of a plan, there are some very important details revealed to us about the social-political situation on side three and what is actually going on here. We learn that Haman's return to side three has been experienced at least by some of the population in a very negative way. There's impressed labor, the conditions under which they're laboring, as you would expect for forced laborers, are horrendous. 
Clearly, they're not taking appropriate safety precautions. We see that with the small asteroid that they detonate early in the show with no warning, presumably because that's faster and cheaper. They're not being fed enough and the food quality is poor. And so naturally, there's a, a nascent labor movement and the beginnings of an armed uprising. The one man lamenting that they were better off under the zombies shows us that to the population as a whole, the fig leaf of Minimah doesn't mean anything. They know very well that Minimah is not in charge. Though I do wonder how much of their feeling is simply that it's been a while since the zombies have been around, and one can often throw rose-tinted glasses over the past. Especially since this guy was probably like a teenager when the zombies were around. But it also shows us the fertile ground from which a movement like Neo Zeon could easily arise. We do have all of these people out in space inside three whose lives are terrible and who fondly remember the glory days of old Zeon. Similarly, that they do not associate Ayug with self-determination or self-governance. They don't seem broken up about being handed over by the Federation, particularly. Like, that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is the war, which the Neo-Zeon government has gotten them into. They clearly consider Neo-Zeon is responsible for these wartime conditions, but there's no sense of like, oh, yay, Ayug is here to rescue us. They did at least react to the name of the nail Argama, presumably because the Argama is well known throughout space, even if no one particularly cares about Ayug outside of the, you know, Granada Anaheim Electronics bubble. Also, if some people that I had captured just told me they had an incredible brand new warship, I would be excited because I would be like, oh, that's my warship now. <laughs> Nina, I'm a little bit disturbed that you immediately jumped to the same plan as Stampa Haloy. You should be glad that my intuition is so good that I know that you're a good person despite that. This episode also shows us a very stark difference in the conditions for Haman up in her mountain chalet mansion. What is her deal with, like fancy pants European style manor houses. She wants everybody to know that she's fancy and important and in charge. These are the symbols of the ruling class and Haman is all about appropriating symbols to advance her agenda and secure her power. Minerva herself is practically a living symbol captured by Haman. And when we get that initial pan, up through Core 3, we also see a stark transition between densely populated, densely built up section of the colony that is all brown. It's all different shades of brown, which we've seen before in Gundam is the visual language for industry, for poverty, and for environmental degradation. Think back to that first view of the Grips colony in episode one of Zeta, or the first view of Shangri-La in the opening episodes of Double Zeta. And then there's a sharp, fast transition. It's not quite a straight line, but it's a really small gradient. And then it's all greenery. It's luxury, it's gardens, it's forests, a handful of mansions, and then up at the top of the artificial mountain range, Haman's Chalet. And perhaps most significant, even more than the greenery, even more than the house itself, even from a distance, there is not a single other human edifice in sight. 
And one of the biggest luxuries in space is space. <laughs> A colony is only so big. What struck me about the scene of Haman at her headquarters, if that is her headquarters, was I thought it was quite beautifully done. The peacefulness of it, the quiet, the sense of calm. And then towards the end of this scene, we, the viewers, are actually looking through an upstairs window, down at Haman taking tea in the garden with Minerva, and a lacy curtain flutters in the breeze through this open window. And I thought it just created such a beautiful sense of distance and peace from the war, from the conflict, from people, from everything and the wrongness of that. This is Haman's beach manor outside Dublin. This is Haman's feast while the army starves. You know, everyone else is in the thick of it. Everyone else is on half rations working in mines <laughs> or getting shot out of space by Zeta Gundams. And Haman is sitting in a garden sipping tea. There aren't even any guards around. That's how safe she is. And to add to that sense of Haman's remove from everything, she doesn't say a word in this scene. She doesn't give any orders. She merely listens to the report, drinks her tea, and nods, completely assured that she doesn't need to do anything. Everything is going according to plan. Everything is safe. The one wonders just how safe she is really given that Glemmy still plots to take over Neo-Zeon. And it rather seems like he's bringing Rakan Dakaran around. And she knows, or at least suspects, that Glemmy can't be trusted. She's commented on that previously when they're apart, and so she knows not to trust him too far. But might she be underestimating him? Might he have made more progress in his plans than she realizes? And it's intriguing to wonder what's going to happen with Glemmy's mission to hunt down the Argama when all of their pilots and their best mobile suits are busy at the Cicero asteroid. Before the proper research, we have a couple of small tidbits to add. I was re-watching some portions of the beginning and ending of this episode because I found the way that they shot the colony, the asteroid, and then the way that they join up a little confusing. Each of them has a little projection that is where they are going to connect. And when they zoom in on those projections, they look like the exterior surface of a colony, but they're not. They're much smaller. And I recently binged the TV show For All Mankind, which is alternate history science fiction about the space race and about human space exploration. And as I was re-watching the end of this episode where the asteroid links up with the colony, I was reminded of the plotline about Apollo Soyuz, which is an actual thing that happened. It was the first international space mission and it involved an American craft and a USSR craft that linked up in space. It's a very big deal. 
because this is during the Cold War. It was a, a kind of olive branch, you know, humanity achieving great things regardless of their differences kind of thing. And that was in 1975. And part of the plot line in this show is that neither country, neither team wants their vehicle, wants their craft to be the female connector, which is an engineering term <laughs> that if you work with computers a lot, you've probably heard. But for those of you who don't know it, uh, basically humans can't see one thing penetrate another thing and not think of penises and vaginas. So <laughs> uh, if you're thinking of, say, like a phone charger, the male connector is the part that goes into the port. The port is the female connector. So what they came up with was what they called an androgynous connection. Uh, it was a series of, they look sort of like pedals coming out from each vehicle. The vehicles would fly into each other so that the pedals alternated, and then they would rotate so that the pedals would interlock. When you watch the very end of this episode, the ends of the two pieces that are going to connect the colony to the asteroid have the same petals, but it seems a bit like it was described to someone, but they weren't shown pictures or it wasn't explained very well because they have it uh, pedal to pedal, just like a flat connection. There's, they're not angled. They don't interlock with each other. There's none of that rotation. I also wanted to take a moment to point out that the voice actor for Rutina is Sakuma Rei. Sakuma Rei is a tremendously prolific voice actor with later Gundam roles, uh, including appearing in 0083 and Endless Waltz. And I'll leave you to either look up or guess what roles she plays in those. This was one of her very, very first roles. Not her very first one, but like maybe her third role as a voice actor. Uh, so this is the beginning of a long and proud career. And now, Nina's research on the miners' uniforms. Looking at the uniforms the miners in Cicero Asteroid wear, I was reminded of two things. Army uniforms, and the clothing typically worn by Japanese construction workers. As it turns out, I was sort of right on both counts, and it's all connected. The iconic Tobi pants, also called Nikapoka, Nika, or Nika Zubon, have very wide legs gathered somewhere between just below the knee and the ankle. They started as part of the stereotypical uniform for construction workers in Japan, but have become fashionable, much as Timberland boots, Dickies and Carhartt pants and jackets, coveralls and denim jeans have gone from utilitarian garments for blue-collar workers to fashion statements for the masses. But how and when did Toby pants become part of the construction worker uniform? In this context, Toby means construction worker, scaffold erector, or firefighter. According to one source, this name comes from the Edo period, when workers in high places used a long pike or pole with a hook at the end of it, which reminded people of the hooked beak of a bird. In English, we call them kites. In Japanese, they are called tobi. The pants being called tobi derives from who wears them, 
primarily construction workers who work in high places, like scaffolding or skyscrapers. Even in the Edo period, there was some glamour to a job that required so much bravery and was pretty dangerous. And nowadays, certain types of jobs, of which construction is one, are called 3K jobs. They are kiken, or dangerous, kitanai, or dirty, and kitsui, or demanding. To which one of my sources, a photography series of construction workers in their gear, added a fourth K, kakoi, or cool. No wonder, then, that these pants have become a fashion statement. In our own time, they are mostly worn out of a sense of tradition, but the design stuck around because it combined protection with ease of movement. Durable fabric protected legs from sparks, while the roomy cut meant it was still easy to crouch, bend, stride, and climb. Supposedly, the excess fabric snaps in the wind as you approach the edges on higher floors, and can even give workers a sense of the intensity of the wind. Which all sounds a bit romanticized to me, but multiple sources mention it, and I've never done construction 30 floors off the ground, so what do I know? At the same time, the gathered bottom hem of the pants means that they won't ride up or catch on things, very important for safety, and makes it easy to tuck the pants into boots or jikatabi. Tabi are socks which separate the big toe from the other toes, which makes them suited to wear with various types of Japanese sandals and shoes, where the strap goes between the big toe and the next one. Jikatabi are shaped like tabi, but are boots with grippy rubber soles. The cloth upper and relatively thin sole make them light and flexible, good for climbing and for feeling ground conditions, and quick to dry out if they get wet. Modern versions even have a steel-reinforced toe cap, like other construction shoes. Tobi, or Nikazubon, originated in the Meiji period, and all sources that addressed the point noted a cross-cultural influence, but whether they were a westernization of a Japanese garment or a Japanicization of a western garment is unclear. Some sources contend they were based on ninja outfits. As we've discussed before, ninja were everything from spies to burglars to assassins, but a construction worker on scaffolding and a burglar clambering over a roof get pretty much the same benefits from loose, durable pants. However, while the Tobi name refers to the job of the person wearing them, the fact that they are also called Nikapoka, or Nikazubon, zubon meaning pants, and Nikapoka being wasego, and the Japanese pronunciation of knickerbocker, seems to show us they were always intended or known to be similar to Western knickerbockers. Knickerbockers are also a loose-cut kind of pants, described as baggy-kneed in one source, ending in a gather somewhere between just below the knee and the ankle. How these pants came to be called knickerbockers is a whole other interesting but not really relevant to Gundam research piece, but I'll tease the topic and say it has to do with literature, a fake Dutch name, New York before it was New York, and the author of Sleepy Hollow. For our purposes, all you need to know is that by the early to mid-1800s, knickerbocker pants came to be associated with and used for all manner of sports and leisure activities. I'm sure many of you can picture old-timey baseball uniforms, or the stereotypical image of how people used to dress for golf, 
But knickerbockers were also worn by skiers, climbers, fencers, and cyclists. For all you basketball fans, the New York Knicks team name is short for the New York Knickerbockers, although they were not referring to the pants. For the same reasons that they were suitable for sports, these pants were also part of quite a few military uniforms. And from the Meiji-era westernization of Japan's military onward, they were part of the uniform for certain branches and ranks within the Japanese armed forces. The show notes will include a page with some photographs and period posters depicting those uniforms. On closer inspection, the miners really seem to be wearing exact replicas of World War II Japanese uniforms. I mean, Xeon uniforms from the One Year War. Are these their old uniforms? Or did Neo Xeon find a bunch in storage and decide to hand them out? They're clearly very different from the current Neo Xeon uniforms. Silly to call them that when they aren't particularly uniform at all. However, at the same time, they wear construction helmets, and there seems to be some high visibility material in a V on the back of their jackets, though those seem to be the only thing differentiating their work clothes from military uniforms. Normally, I'd feel a bit embarrassed for having gotten the visual reference kinda wrong, but learning the history and knowing that both Imperial Japanese military uniforms and construction worker pants have influences in common makes it sting a bit less. This is another one where I highly recommend checking out the show notes. There are some great photos from catalogs that sell clothing for construction workers of people who wear the clothing more as a fashion statement than for work, all kinds of really fun visuals. So please check that out. And now, the continuation of Tom's research on the tale of the Heike. As promised, I'm going to return to the tale of the Heike this week. But because this episode is already quite long, I'm going to keep this one short and continue the story next week. In fact, I plan to unwind the whole tale in installments throughout the rest of Double Zeta. That wasn't my original plan, but when I was outlining this research and looking at which characters from the tale map onto which characters from Double Zeta, I realized that some of them seem so similar that if I told you the whole story right away, I might actually spoil some of Double Zeta's remaining twists. And you know our policy on spoilers. No spoilers. So. Just think of these installments as a mini-podcast about the tale of the Heike contained within the larger MSB podcast. But different from Radio Free Shangri-La, our other podcast within a podcast. Last week, I told you about the conflict between the retired Emperor Sutoku and the reigning Emperor Go Shirakawa. Theirs was an echo of the conflict of a prior generation, when their predecessor, the Emperor Toba, grappled for power against his domineering and inconveniently long-lived grandfather. Leaving aside the rumors about Sutoku's true father, the two clashing emperors were brothers, and their rivalry divided the other major families into feuding factions along similar lines. Fathers against sons, brothers against brothers. Who were those families? The Fujiwara clan of court nobles and hereditary regents, the Taira warrior clan who maintained order in Japan's western provinces, and the Minamoto warrior clan who dominated the eastern provinces. The fighting was brief, limited to one decisive battle, 
a night attack on the palace where Sutoku and his generals had holed up. Sutoku had the better fighters, and the experienced soldiers among them wanted to launch an attack right away, but his civilian advisors cautioned him to wait until more allies arrived and his force became unassailable. On the other side, though, Go Shirakawa's younger soldiers took the initiative right away. They raided and burned down Sutoku's palace fortress. In the chaos, they captured and executed all of his generals and exiled the former emperor to a distant province. Go Shirakawa was assured in his power on the throne, and so he did what any self-respecting emperor would do after eliminating all of his serious rivals. He quit. What? Even though nobody forced him to abdicate, he just gave up being emperor? At the height of his power? After fighting a bloody civil war to keep it? He just wanted to see if he could do it. Once you beat the final boss, the game is over, right? In this episode, I'm going to look with a little more detail at the balance of power in the imperial court, and the role a retired emperor could expect to have, at this moment, some 20 years before the proper beginning of the tale of the Heike, because it's going to make everything make a lot more sense later. As I said last week, through much of the Heian period, the real business of government was handled by the Fujiwara clan, hereditary regents to the emperors. The Fujiwara ministers maintained this power through a practice of marrying Fujiwara noblewomen, usually their daughters, to the emperors and imperial princes, ensuring that they would have blood ties to whoever was on the throne. But in 1068, about a hundred years before the story I told you last episode, this system broke down. The emperor Go Reize died without male children, and the succession passed to his younger brother Go Sanjo. This was a bit unusual. Unlike Golreze, who had a Fujiwara mother and was thus bound to that family and dominated by his Fujiwara uncle, Go Sanjo's mother had been a princess of the imperial family. The Fujiwara were not ignorant of the danger that an independent emperor like Go Sanjo might pose to their dominance. There's reason to believe that they attempted to assassinate him on at least one occasion during his time as crown prince. He would not have been the first inconvenient crown prince thus eliminated by the Fujiwara. But Go Sanjo managed to survive. When he ascended to the throne in 1068, he was the first emperor in 170 years who did not have a Fujiwara mother. He owed that clan no special familial loyalty, and was free to work to break their power at court. And this he did. Over the next five years, he reorganized the government issued new laws to curtail abuses of power, and consolidated the imperial household's finances to give them a base of power and wealth independent of their most powerful courtiers. He also tried to regulate the shōen, those powerful tax-exempt estates I mentioned last episode, but it seems that he was not so successful at curtailing their growth. Although, possibly, because he was less interested in actually breaking up the shōen and more interested in using all of this as a pretext to reduce the power of the Fujiwara by confiscating their shōen lands in particular. In another move to reduce the power of the Fujiwara at court, Go Sanjo began to rely on the services of nobles of lower rank but greater ability and greater loyalty, creating a kind of nascent bureaucracy. He also promoted non-Fujiwara nobles into the highest echelons of the imperial court. 
never enough to dominate court politics, but enough to throw the traditional alliances into chaos. With no one faction able to assert itself over the others, Go Sanjo was left relatively free to rule as he saw fit. Then, at the height of his power, and after only five years on the throne, Go Sanjo abdicated, and his son ascended. The reasons for this abdication are hotly contested, but in my view, the most plausible explanation is that Go Sanjo knew the Fujiwara would try to dominate his successor, whoever he was. By abdicating, while his body and his power were both still intact, he could work behind the scenes to ensure his successor's independence. Whatever his plans were, they were spoiled, as is so often the case in history, by cruel fate. Within five months of his abdication, Go Sanjo, the most powerful emperor in centuries, got sick and soon died. He was 42 years old. But he had established a pattern that his son, the new emperor Shirakawa, would follow to much greater effect. And by the way, this Shirakawa is not the same as the Go Shirakawa who overcame Sutoku and who is going to play a big role in the tale of the Heike. The Go prefix on these emperors' names means something like the latter or the second. And Go Sanjo's son Shirakawa, the first, was actually Go Shirakawa's great-grandfather. Shirakawa, the former, ruled from 1074 until 1087, when, at the height of his power and only 33 years old, he abdicated, just as his father had. And then, he just kept ruling the country as he had before, but now free from the assorted ceremonial responsibilities and court intrigues that still bound the reigning emperor. Unlike his father, he proved exceptionally long-lived and effectively ruled the country as a retired emperor for the next four decades. He outlived his own son and successor and went on to dominate his grandson, the emperor Toba. Remember Toba from last episode? He was the emperor who was forced to abdicate in favor of his firstborn son, Sutoku, which must have been especially insulting because of the rumors swirling through the imperial court that Sutoku's real father was not Toba, but Toba's grandfather, who was none other than the very Shirakawa that we're discussing right now. See, it all comes back around. Shirakawa remained the real power at court even into Sutoku's reign, but he died in 1129, at the age of 76. He left both a huge power vacuum and a blueprint for a new system of governance where a retired emperor and his coterie of low-ranking retainers and secretaries would handle all the practical governance of the state, while the ritual and ceremonial duties would be handled by the reigning emperor and his Fujiwara regent. Shirakawa's grandson, the retired emperor Toba, stepped quickly and eagerly into this role. Toba held the real power, and orchestrated the successions through the reigns of Sutoku, Konoe, and into the beginning of Go Shirakawa's reign. It was Toba's death and the subsequent power vacuum that triggered the power struggle between Go Shirakawa and Sutoku. And as soon as Go Shirakawa had eliminated his rival, he too followed the pattern laid out by his namesake. He abdicated the throne and settled down to actually rule the country on behalf of the new emperor, his teenage son. 
He would come, however, to rely more and more on the services of the powerful Tyra warriors. And he would still be there 20 years later, when tensions between the warrior clans Tyra and Minamoto broke out into the open warfare of the Genpei War and the tale of the Heike. But that will have to wait for another episode. Next time on episode 3.41, The Snake Eats Its Own Tail, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 43 and... Is Minerva ever going to speak? Everybody to the limit. Coup de Toto. Advanced camouflage techniques. A touching reunion. Get it? In your base, killing your mans. Ha 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 ha. Bothersome worms. All kinds of stuff. And judo practices radical forgiveness. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, If those Cicero miners are going to defeat Cat-Eyed Chiara, they're going to need some kind of tragic loss to motivate them. Oh, hey, Rutina. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. I'm trying to think of how to say this. Because we're like, we're in the home stretch. We're so close to being done. Are you telling me you did not go and do construction 30 floors off the ground in order to thoroughly research this topic? I know. I've really let the side down. (gasps) How recursive can we get? Well, Radio Free Shangri-La is about the cast of a radio station making a radio program which is then a show within the show within the show, we're pretty recursive already. Proper beginning of the tale of the Heike. You might have to do that again. People be driving.
<laughs> Driving me crazy. Pretty Hey. It's a very wrong Gundam opinion. <laughs> it is extremely incorrect. funny rumor the other day about one of the insurance adjusters who came out to look at my mansion after the crash. I feel like her voice was all over on that one. I don't know where she's from anymore. Woman, who are you? Maybe that's the point. Who is she? Should I do that again? Sorry, Tom. Doing it again. I feel like I've done this line ten times.